Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, or today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Well, thank you very much, Ali, for reading. And let me add my welcome to Chalmers this evening, um, especially as you found us here. Well done. Uh, as I start my timer, let me um, just say, as Robin mentioned this morning, we are on kind of similar ground as we were if you were here this morning. We were thinking this morning about the words of Jesus, God the Son, um, the authority and power of his words. And we're still thinking about the words of Jesus, God the Son. The difference between this morning and this evening is that the emphasis was on the words this morning, the power they have, the authority they have. Tonight, the emphasis is on the Son, whose words they are. Who is He? So we get a good long look tonight at the Lord Jesus. What a great thing to be doing with our time. Let me lead us in prayer, and uh, then I'll introduce something. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus. We pray you'd humble our hearts and our minds to recognize your majesty, your infinite power, glory, and authority. And we pray you'd cause us to grip the words of the Lord Jesus even more tightly. And for those here not yet properly introduced to him, we pray you might do that tonight, even as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll see there's an outline on the back of the handout. Um, I, there's, there is something, as we start this kind of series in Hebrews, there is something big I want to say right up front, um, which is, uh, it's about how you know whether you're thinking about an idol that is a, a man-made God, a counterfeit God, or whether you're thinking about the real God. In our 1 Corinthians series, we've been thinking a bit about idolatry. There's lots of tests to tell whether you're thinking about the real God or a man-made God, a, a kind of counterfeit, human-constructed God. Um, we haven't got time for all the tests, things like can he predict the future, uh, can he actually change anything, that kind of thing. But the test I want us to get our heads around tonight is this test, which is, a real God must be bigger than my mind. A real God, the real God, must be bigger than my brain. I think when you pause and, and think about that, uh, it becomes kind of obvious, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk us through anyway, just in case it's not. Um, a God who's small enough to fit inside my thinking must be an idol. The claim of the Bible is not that we imagine God, 
but the God imagined us. All false religions are human beings imagining God. But the real creator imagined us. Why am I saying that at the start of this series on Hebrews? I'm flagging it up to help us to know what to do or or even how to feel when we come across something the Bible says that's genuinely hard to get our heads around. Everyone hits that feeling at some point. You may just be a kind of bystander looking in on Christian things, wondering what we believe. At some point, you're going to hit something where you think, huh? Huh? How does that fit with that? How, how do those things fit together at once? But actually, Christians have that experience as well. I'm sure you have had it if you've been reading the Bible carefully and thinking about it. God's told us many clear things about himself, but he hasn't told us everything there is to know. And if he did, we couldn't get our heads around it. He's bigger than us. The Bible puts it like this. Um, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways higher than our ways. There are lots of examples of this. Let me give you three that are going to come up in this short series in Hebrews over the next four weeks. They're all actually mentioned in our next four verses, but we'll unpack them as the series goes on. Three big things the Bible says, loud and clear about God, that it's hard to get your head around. Here's the first one. The Bible teaches very clearly that God is Trinity. Just have a look at the first question uh, our new members were asked. Um, The first question inside the service sheet, do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The word Trinity is actually shorthand. It's short for tri-unity, as in three in one, Trinity. The word's not in the Bible, but it's summarizing what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches loud and clear there's only one God, but that one God has always been Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons. It's actually a marvelous thing. I mean, if God wasn't like that, he couldn't have been eternally loving. Who would he have been loving? Such a wonderful thing. Marvelous that God, even before any of us turned up, God was already perfectly loving. The Father loving the Son. The Spirit delighting in the Father's love of the Son. That's perfect love. It's a wonderful thing. But when you kind of try and get your head around it, it's mind-blowing. It's it's brain-bending. It's mysterious. You don't come across eternal, tri-personal unities every day. You don't meet them at the bus stop. The more you think about it, the more humbling it becomes. We could much more easily get our heads around a, a kind of single God that was just monolithic, just one God. And that's what Islam has created. A single God. No interpersonal um, relation. Or we could get our heads around lots of gods. That's what the Greeks and the Romans did. I think it's what's happening today with kind of multiple values in our society. Just competing, squabbling absolutes. That's easy to understand. Chaos to live under. But what the Bible teaches is a single, 
a three-in-one deity, an interpersonal unity just blows our minds. So that's the first of my three examples of big things to get your head around. There are two more, and they're going to get more astounding as we go on. These are all in our first verses. You'll see in a moment as we work through the verses. Here's the second thing Hebrews is going to teach us in this series. The Bible is going to teach really clearly that God the Son, so the second person of that trinity, God the Son took on flesh and became a human being. That's called the incarnation, if you want a technical term, or at a more popular level, it's called Christmas. That's what we're going to be thinking about for the next couple of months. And again, the more carefully you think about it, the more deeply you actually stop and think what we're talking about, what we're singing about in those carols, the more it blows your mind. Just think about it. The God who does not change, who cannot change, who exists outside of time, the God who cannot hunger or thirst or grow tired, the God who cannot grow in knowledge because he already knows everything, that God took on flesh, became a human being, became a baby. Welded his divine nature to a human nature in the person of his son. It's absolutely extraordinary. It blows our minds. But the third one's even bigger still. The third one is when God the Son, having taken on humanity, dies goes to the cross and dies. That is the immortal God dying on a cross. God the Son, in his humanity, submitting to the nails from Roman soldiers, whilst at the same time sustaining their life. He's the one sustaining the whole universe as he submits to some soldiers nailing him to a tree that he made. It's absolutely extraordinary. God is bigger than our brains. And why I'm saying that at this point is because when we hit something like that in the Bible, and we will hit things like that in this series in Hebrews, when we hit something like that, Rather than panicking and thinking, oh no, that's a bit difficult, how would I explain that? Rather than thinking that reduces the credibility of Christianity, not at all. If we understood everything easily, we'd be dealing with idolatry. Human-made gods. If the infinite God never stretched us beyond our finite thinking... Well, it would be more comfortable, but it would be less true. And so as we turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, let's prepare in humility for our minds to be blown. You'll see there are um, three points on the back of that handout. Firstly, we're going to think about how God has now spoken through his son. Then point two, the bulk of our time, we're going to just think who the son actually is. That's the mind-blowing stuff. And then we'll close briefly. Point three will be brief, so don't panic. It'll take a while to get there. But we'll close briefly with the kind of application about who we listen to. So first then, point one. 
Previously, God has spoken variously by prophets, but now he's spoken climactically in his Son. It's a bit of a mouthful, but you'll see where I'm getting it from, from verse 1. Let me read again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, that's now, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there it is, verse 1. Previously, God's spoken in lots of ways, variously. If you read through the Old Testament, that's what you see. I mean, he he speaks um, in dreams to Joseph, to Daniel. He speaks face-to-face, he says, with Moses. Uh, He sticks some writing on the wall um, for the Persian kings. There's an audible voice to to Israel at Mount Sinai, uh, or when he calls Samuel the prophet. Um, He works through prophets, but in various kind of ways. Uh, One time he speaks through a donkey to a particularly stubborn prophet. Many times, many ways, by the prophets. But now, verse 2, there's a real step change. Just look at it with me. Uh, We're on page 1001, if you've closed your Bible. Verse 2 of of chapter 1. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. See the difference? Used to be lots of media, lots of different ways, lots of times, but now climax in his son the pinnacle the son has spoken doesn't get bigger doesn't get fuller than him doesn't get better than him what does that actually mean in practice what kind of application is this coming to is this saying you can basically safely ignore the old testament that was the kind of old stuff not quite as good and now we've got Jesus' words and that's where we're really at Well, no, look at verse 1 again. Who is speaking in verse 1? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. So the Old Testament, it was God speaking. The Old Testament, as we've been seeing in recent weeks, is just as much God's word as the new. We saw it in 2 Timothy 3, didn't we? All scripture is breathed out by God. And the, the Holy Spirit breathing out the words into his prophets and and the writers of the Bible. So it's not, get the contrast right, it's not verse 1, it used to be human words, and now verse 2, we've finally got Jesus' words. Not that at all. The triune God has been speaking, verse 1, by prophets in different ways at various times, but now by his Son. That makes sense? All God speaking, but now, climactically, in Jesus the Son. What is the kind of big message that's so big the Son has personally delivered it? Well, just flick your eyes on to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. This is where we get the application of this passage. And we'll come back here next week because we're doing the rest of chapter 1 next week. But just have a look with me. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. There's the application, to, to pay closer attention to what we've heard from Jesus, the Son. What have we heard from him? Well, look at verse 3 how, of chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So this climactic message, the kind of big finish of the Bible story, is this gospel, this salvation message 
The message we've seen declared in Mark chapter 1, this message of forgiveness that King Jesus brings. And as we've seen in Acts, and we looked at this morning, verses 3 and 4 show that it was declared at first by Jesus the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard. So the apostles bore witness to it. They they kind of um, heard it and wrote it down. And verse 4, God authenticated them by signs and wonders. That's just a little mini storyline of the book of Acts in summary. Basically, Jesus said it, the apostles heard it, and God stamped his authority upon it. So that's the message, this message of salvation, this gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. Do you see the point? It's not saying that back in the day God wasn't really speaking, but now he really is speaking because Jesus has turned up. No, God has been speaking all the time, but now the Son has turned up with this amazing news of salvation, this climactic announcement of the gospel, this, as Hebrew says later, this new covenant in his blood, forgiveness for free forever. That's what's turned up when God the Son stepped onto earth. And to get our heads around just how amazing that announcement is, takes a bit of pondering about who the Son is. I know it's Sunday evening, I know we're tired, but taking a good look at Jesus Christ helps us appreciate how firmly we should grip the gospel when you know who actually delivered it to us. Not just some guy up the front, not just some church tradition that you happen to be born in or happen to come along to at university, but Jesus Christ, the Son himself, declared this message. Knowing who the speaker is will help us grip the message. Let me just pause there, though, before we take a deep dive into kind of Jesus' identity in this passage. Why do Christians need reminding to stick with the gospel? Why why do Christians need to be reminded to stick to Jesus' words? Why did this church need this as the introduction to to this letter to them? After all, surely it's obvious, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you stick with Jesus' words. Well, the answer to that is that it's costly to stick with Jesus' words. Just flick across in Hebrews with me to chapter 10, page 1007. Keep a finger in Chapter 1, we'll be back there soon, but page 1007, we just give you a feel for what kind of things this church had been going through. Um, So page 1007, chapter 10, verse 32. This is the kind of church that's being written to. Verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since that you you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance." so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. Here was a church that needed to keep enduring the cost of sticking with Jesus' words. In the past, they've, 
They've suffered a lot of opposition. They've suffered stigma. You know that question Robin asked up here about um, what are your fears? Um, It's wonderful to, to hear the kind of excitement and enthusiasm for the plant. The reason we ask questions like that is because the Bible tells us again and again, think 2 Timothy, think Hebrews 10, tells us again and again that the real message of Jesus does get opposed. It is costly to stick with. Remember 2 Timothy 3, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this church knew that from experience. They'd been doing that for a while. The problem was they were getting weary. They were getting weary of their their mates saying, oh, you don't go to that church, do you? Getting weary of always being the, the kind of odd ones out socially. I guess getting weary of the names. I don't know what it would be. You're a bit fanatical. Uh, you're a bit narrow-minded. Funnily enough, they, weren't, they didn't get the, the criticism, you're a bit old-fashioned, because Christianity was quite new at that point. Um, in fact, they got the opposite one. What's this newfangled thing? At the time, it was safe to, to follow Judaism. Um, the state didn't mind too much, put up with you. It was dangerous to follow Christianity an underground sect. We don't really know what that is. And so, so tempting for them to slip away from real, Jesus' word-centered biblical Christianity and back to, well, religion that fits in with the government, with the world around. And this is where it links with us. You see, we may, most of us may not be tempted to go back to Judaism, But there is developing in Scotland a kind of civil Christianity, a kind of state-sponsored, respectable religion, where you still talk about Jesus in name, but you don't talk about what Jesus actually says in the Bible. A Christianity that won't challenge the prevailing tides of public opinion or political opinion, that won't speak on the Bible's challenges, whether about sin or idolatry or judgment, the uniqueness of Christ. And it's tempting, because if you drift across to that kind, well, then the rewards of respect, kudos, political positions, power, civil, social respect are all there. Or you stick with Jesus and the Bible in those words and get all the labels. Narrow-minded, old-fashioned, a bit fanatical. And Hebrews, the book, comes to us saying, stick with Jesus. If you just knew who he was, or really just remembered who he was. They, they already know this stuff, but they just need a reminder to consider Jesus, the person who actually brought you this message. Well, then you wouldn't consider walking away. You wouldn't dare walking away. You also wouldn't want to walk away from his words. 2 verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard I'm actually really glad, so I've been reflecting on this series in preparation, I'm really glad this is what we're doing on Sunday nights as the Redeemer church plant is just about to go. There are lots of questions about the church plant. Um, If you're not worrying about them, we probably are (laughs) up here. Lots of questions. Will the building be finished and on budget? Uh, Will they start on the planned date? Will they become financially self-supporting? Will they grow in numbers or shrink in numbers? But actually, there's one big question. 
much, 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 much more important than any of those, will they stick with Jesus and his words when it costs? Not if it costs, when? And actually, that question bounces back to us at Chalmers just as loudly. Will we stick with Jesus' words? You see, this Hebrew church, it was more in the Chalmers position than the Redeemer position. It had already been through years of cost. They'd already taken stands for the gospel. They had a good track record, good reputation. But there's always the the question, every month, every year, will we stick with the words of Jesus? Will we get weary of the cost? They're just beginning to be at risk of lowering the sails, of slowing down in the race, of just weakening their grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which, if you remember who he is, is absolutely crazy. So let's dive into point two. Who is the son? Uh, Point two and um, verse two. Remember, we saw, chapter 2, verse 3, we saw that this gospel, this salvation has been declared by the Lord. Now let's have a look at who this Lord actually is. Verse 2 of chapter 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So who's the Son? And this is the bit that's going to take a bit of mental hard work. So please take a deep breath. Psych yourself up and stay with me. It's worth tuning in. This this is the stuff, it's hard, but this is the stuff that keeps Christians and keeps churches going through the storms. Let's consider who the Son of God is in these magnificent four verses. So, um, uh, firstly, I I want us to see, you'll see under point two, um, Jesus is God's Son in two ways. If you zone out and forget the next five minutes, just remember this. Jesus is God's son in two senses. Firstly, the Trinitarian sense. He's God's eternal son, the second person of the Trinity. He's always been the eternal son of God. There's that sense, Um, and that's the sense. If you look at the end of verse 2, so in these last days, God's spoken to us by his Son. End of verse 2, through whom also he created the world. The Son was there at creation. Of course he was, because he's eternally the Son of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, as Robin reminded us this morning, were there creating together. So he's the divine Son, eternal But there's something else in verse 2, something just sitting in the middle, which I skipped over. Um, God's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So concentrate with me. He's the creator of the world, has been the eternal divine Son forever and, and created the world with the Father. He's not the first creature. No, he's the creator of all things. Okay? That's one sense of he's the Son. He's another kind of son, though. He's the son appointed the heir of all things. The one appointed to inherit the nations. Now, that language of inheritance, of heir of the nations, comes from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the king, the promised king, is told by the father... Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance. 
So Psalm 2 says, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance. There was this kind of job description, if you like, for a son of God who would be a human king on David's throne who inherits the nations. That make sense? Still with me? So, eternal son of God, Jesus' son in that sense, and appointed heir of the nations, the inheritor, the, the human king sitting on David's throne. And I'm not just pulling this Psalm 2 stuff kind of out of a hat. Just read verse 5 with me. Um, to which of the angels did God ever say, and then this is Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So Jesus, and this is where the brain starts to bend, Jesus is son in two ways, eternal son of God and appointed human king, the promised Davidic king, the king on the throne. To put it another way, he made you and he owns you. He's the inheritor of the nations. In Psalm 2, the psalm goes on to say, he's the one who will judge the nations. It's his opinion that matters in the end, because the world belongs to him. Or in other words, Jesus owns us twice over. He's owed double loyalty from all nations on the planet. The maker of all people, the ruler of all people. That may all sound a bit kind of technical and complicated, but actually, as you read through the New Testament, you just see that happening again and again and again. What gives Jesus the right to turn up in Mark's gospel and say, turn around, believe the gospel, repent, and follow me? Well, partly because he made everyone, partly because he's the king of everyone. What gives him the right to stand up in Matthew, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, and say, all authority has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Well, because all the nations belong to him. He's the king, the son of God, the king of all the nations. So, that's verse 2. So far, so good. We've got verses 3 to add. And, and verse 3 and 4 are going to keep unpacking this twin idea. Both the eternal son and the promised king. Both at once. So verse 3, here's some more eternal son stuff. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's some more detail on what it means to be God, to be the eternal son of God. Uh, he's no less than the father. That's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And as you look at him, you see God. You see God's perfection on display. Last week, Robin was talking about how fathers and sons in the ancient world often share the business. There's a kind of functional aspect to Jesus being the son. He does the same work, the same business. That's absolutely true and is the focus in, in Mark in the baptism. But here, it's not just a functional match. It's not just they do the same job. No, the son looks exactly like the father. He shares all the same deity. Apart from being the father, uh, he is exactly 
God like the Son, sorry, like, like the Father. Or to put it another way, you know how God doesn't change? Well, Jesus Christ doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Like the Father, he's immortal, omniscient, omnipotent. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. Or as verse 3 puts it, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you know when I said at the start about that moment when the Roman soldiers were nailing in the nails to Jesus on the cross, and I said that Jesus was sustaining them even as they did it. I didn't just pluck that example out of the air. That is the implication of verse 3. Let's look at it again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the only reason we're all sitting on chairs that remain stable, all the quantum mechanics and atomic whatevers and molecular doodahs. I'm not a scientist. That's about as good as I could do. Whatever's going on, uh, which some people understand more than me, but it's being upheld. That regularity, order, solidity is being upheld by the words of Jesus. He's sustaining us at this moment by his word of power. And yet, the very next sentence talks about him making purification for sins, that is, dying on the cross to make us clean. It's absolutely extraordinary that he was giving the soldiers breath while they used the breath to nail his hands to a cross. Mind-bending. So that's more about the eternal son. And then as we read on, more about this appointed king, the, the son of God, as in the king who's been appointed. So after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, Psalm 2. Or again, 2 Samuel 7, I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Again, a whole string of promises about the human king who would sit on David's throne. Jesus didn't just make us, he stepped on the, onto the planet to save us, to die in our place, to rise and to take his place as the throne, on the throne of the universe at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's why chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. You see, when this person has spoken, when this voice has broken loud and clear into the world, the one who made us, the one whose voice sustains us, the one who is appointed king and judge of the whole world, well, who are you going to listen to more than him? This is our final point very briefly. Of all the voices we hear in life, of all the words and people and things which influence us, that shape our worldview, 
How do they compare with the sun? I've listed on the handout some of the implications of what we've been saying. Um, it's really just saying the same thing as point two a second time, just in case it didn't go in. But just look at that list of things about Jesus. Jesus is the one who made you. Jesus is the one for whom we were made, the heir of all things. Jesus is the one perfect image of God. Jesus is the one whose word sustains you. Jesus is the one who laid down his life for you. You can trust him. He's not just big. He's not just, he's not just all power. He's loving power. Jesus is the promised king who holds eternity in your hand, as in it's his voice on the final day. It's his opinion that will hold sway in the court of eternity. It'd be a great thing afterwards over coffee to discuss um, who is it that does really influence the way we think about life or the way we feel about things? Who is it we listen to? It's good to listen. I'm not, I'm not saying don't listen to anyone about anything. Um, it's good to listen. It's good to listen carefully to all sorts of voices. But this is the one voice above all, clearly above all. It'd be great to chat about who has the power to affect my behavior or my outlook on life. All sorts of things, I guess. It could be our family, maybe our parents could be our closest friends. Maybe there's one or two people we just really trust to say how it is. might be the news. might be colleagues at work or the culture at work, the, the values we're kind of trained in. could be celebrities, magazines, TV, who knows. It could be pressure from the authorities. Certainly where some of our gospel partners is, there's immense pressure to toe the line with a kind of public Christianity that takes the words of Jesus out. Lots of voices come our way. And when it comes to weighing them up, when it comes to deciding what's actually true, when it comes to whether to live in light of what they say, well, one voice to pay much closer attention to above all others, the sun. See, you cannot improve on the testimony of the sun. God used to speak in loads of ways by prophets. He's now spoken through his son, the eternal son of God, the appointed king of the world. Let's pray we wouldn't drift away. Our Father in heaven, you, you declared at the transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. And we pray simply that you would help us to do that tonight, this week, this month, and for the rest of our lives, personally and as a church family. We pray that we would listen to the son, that our grip on him would not weaken even when it costs. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.